my sister's baby is seven months old now. Oh. And she is like the most smiley baby. And oh. and you were talking about screens, like you'll hold a FaceTime call or something with yeah. somebody on the other side and they'll yeah. smile and she'll just light up. Like she just mirrors <laughs> whenever she sees a smile she turns into a little baby smile yeah yeah it's good to remember you know to give them smiles not frowny faces because yeah. Yeah, yeah they will mirror that <laughs> can you see me like full screen we yeah. we just use the audio so okay very good yeah, you could do whatever you want if you want to dance around whatever oh, makes you feel comfortable you know okay thank you <laughs> I probably need to dance around. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think we all need to dance around. <laughs> Welcome to Awakening Lands, a part of Appreciating the Life That Is Studios. In this episode, Anna Prepara and myself, Benji Ross, are joined by longtime environmental leader and weaver of Buffalo and the Erie Niagara region, Margaret Wooster. How my environmentalism started, you know, was it produced by activism or did it result in it? I don't even know. You know, the activism probably wasn't my intention, but, um, you know, it comes with the territory. If you care, it's hard not to get active. Although I'm trying, <laughs> I'm trying to, I'm trying to back out a little bit, but I don't, it's just hard to, to um, walk away from something you know is not right. Margaret embodies something essential for us to understand in learning to heal ourselves, our places, and the planet. It's a spirit that, to me, represents the resilience of life. This ability to experience wonder, even mm. in these very like contaminated places, mm. and also to form like these deep relationships and connections to place, even if they are like smoldering. Yeah, I mean, that, I totally agree with that. That That is true. I'm getting chills. In this episode, we'll learn a bit about how Margaret became Margaret. We'll learn some about the history of Buffalo, some regeneration that's happened and some that's ongoing. And we'll see a struggle underway to maintain a rich ecological and cultural history. And we'll see all of that through four landscapes that Margaret has a relationship with. Then near the end, We'll get a picture of an effort coming together to see and care for all of the Great Lakes and how we might practice becoming the people who are capable of being a part of all of that. I, I have to go for one second and, and get my little Thanksgiving address book, which is the Haudenosaunee Thanksgiving prayer that they do at most openings of meetings, because I forgot one thing about it. So I'll just have that here. I'm just going to go get it. I'll be right back. And as she stepped away. Yeah, that's um, how uh, the like they start their school day with it. They start any event or gathering with it. She returned with a little green book in hand. They published this. I don't know if you can see it. I guess my background is buzzing out. A little yeah. Anyway, it's this little book that it's called the Thanksgiving Address. And they've published it in like tw at least 20 different languages including mm. Japanese and <clears throat> a bunch of indigenous uh, languages. And it's called uh, Words Before All Else. It's from the Native Self-Sufficiency Center at Six Nations Museum in, in the Adirondacks. So they, I guess it begins with thanks to the people and thanks to each other as people and then thanks to the Earth Mother. So 
It's pretty mm-hmm. great. That is great. Did you know that the ritual that we've been developing in these conversations has, has been to start with gratitudes? Oh, I didn't know that. No, no. That's yeah. great. So do you start or do I start? The ritual has been for one of us to sort of reflect really briefly on the value of mm. starting with gratitudes. Oh, okay. And, I love that. And I don't know if you, it, maybe you would like to do that. Do you have anything that you'd like to say about the value of, of having a gratitude ritual that we can start with? And then the three of us can take turns expressing what we're grateful for. I do think it is the best way to begin everything, really. I mean, you know, if you're gardening or if you're doing anything in the world to, you know, respect the other that you're exchanging with and give thanks, if you can do that first up front, it probably does make a whole difference in terms of the um, the tenor of the conversation that follows. So it's a very valuable practice. Definitely. How about you, Anna? Well, so I've been um, thinking about what my, my gratitude would be this morning. And I think um, coming out of so many of these discussions, I attended the first committee meeting for Glenn, the Great Lakes Ecoregion Network yesterday. And I just am so grateful for living in a really vibrant area, um, a place there, you know, within Erie, Niagara, just how much people care about this place and the history and how much connection we have. And I think a lot of people don't think of Buffalo or Niagara Falls necessarily that way, but just, um, yeah, I'm uh, just always so I get so excited whenever I talk about the history, whether it's cultural or natural and all the amazing things that are going on. So yeah, that's what I'm grateful for. This morning, I was feeling just a little bit of, I don't know, tension or stress from a, you know, a variety of things. It wasn't any one thing. Um, And I just had a moment where I looked out the window and the sunrise over Grand Mesa, I'm in Grand Junction, Colorado right now, was just, I mean, it was like pink and orange. It was just stunning. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I was grateful for the sunrise, but then I kind of, because we're doing so many of these gratitude practices, I think I kind of thought about gratitude in a more meta way. And I was grateful for the ability that we have to always just be grateful. (laughs) uh you know in in really focusing on being grateful for that sunrise i just felt that tension just melt away wow that's good an attitude of gratitude for gratitude (laughs) yeah Yeah. that's great i didn't know we had a beat poet (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. yeah this would be what i'm grateful for so I give thanks to all of the indigenous communities that live around the Great Lakes um, because there are a lot. Even in Western New York, there's four separate territories, um, Haudenosaunee territories. And across the state, there's probably more like a dozen um, if you go all the way up the St. Lawrence and to the eastern part of the state. And um, so I give thanks to all the Haudenosaunee communities and all the indigenous communities around the Great Lakes. We're rich in indigenous communities, probably the, in terms of the bioregion of the country, um, the Great Lakes bioregion is, it, you know, is maybe the richest in terms of its indigenous uh, communities that still live here. And I think they are our lifeline for the Great Lakes, for the water, 
for um, our future. The, the people that I know, you know, um, express this. Um, they live it. You can see it on their land. The best water quality is on their land. Uh, the best forestry, um, the, you know, the, the remaining natural areas that you can look back and you can see in them, you know, a, a couple hundred years at least of history. All of that is their contribution. So I give thanks to the indigenous people who live in the Great Lakes and, and in my region. Growing up in Buffalo, um, we would love to hear how you started developing your connection to this place. It really just sounds like Buffalo was kind of a scary place. And how did you end up loving it so much that you dedicate your life to restoring it? I, I don't think of it as a scary place, and I'm not even sure I did as a child. My first, you know, acquaintance with the Outer Harbor was in the late 50s, going there with my father who had a little construction company with one other guy, and on Fridays they took all their construction debris in the back of his pickup truck to the Outer Harbor and they dumped it. They just dumped it wherever. I don't remember there being a, like a gate to go through or any kind of anything, and, and I would go with them. I, I loved going with them because I, I liked to look around out there because it was so fascinating to me. I just thought it was normal. I didn't know that your waterfront was, was not supposed to be burning and stinking with piles of garbage here and there and dead, you know, every now and then a dead bird, usually a gull, um, always intact. You know, I'm always going around, poking around, looking at things and there's, you know, gulls there, like the big ones, herring gulls, I think. And a couple always I would find, you know, dead, but still beautiful on the ground. Couldn't figure that out. And then the smell, there was a particular smell that was, um, that I later found out is aniline mixed with, um, you know, with, with burning uh, fires and with um, some other chemical that was produced by the industries. But aniline dye was definitely coming from Buffalo color. And it's a sweet smell. So, yeah, I, I just uh, remember uh, the Outer Harbor, uh, and and I wasn't horrified. I was fascinated by, by what was there. And that really was a direct line to becoming a friend of the Buffalo River. Back in the beginning, when we first formed, we were, you know, we were really responding to the Great Lakes Water Quality Agreement, and the, the goal is to restore and maintain the chemical, physical, and biological integrity of the waters of the Great Lakes. The Binational Commission named, like in 1987, 42 areas of concern around the Great Lakes. And Buffalo has two of them, the Niagara River, which includes the lakefront, and the, and the Buffalo River. You know, that was, that was a, a direct line, I would say, back to the childhood experience of, of being there and seeing it in that state, because I know a lot of people now who love the Outer Harbor, but they have no idea that it is a regeneration of something that was so messed up, so despoiled, um, in such bad shape, and it's still not in great shape. I mean, we still have fish advisories. We, you can't eat the fish because of PCBs. If you catch fish out there, and there are fish, you can't eat them. Uh, you can't swim. Um, the contamination, again, it's the PCBs, I think, mainly maybe lead sometimes, too. So. The Outer Harbor has, I guess, 
you know, a lesson in it of regeneration. And again, for me, that comes back to how important it is that we have something of these places that the next generations can see what it was and what it could be. And the Outer Harbor has another lesson in it. Throughout the region and likely beyond, there is this perspective that when contamination is cleaned up, restoration is done. Anne and I have heard over and over with Buffalo leaders and weavers that there is a growing desire for a redefinition of restoration to extend to ongoing protection, for regeneration to be allowed to continue. As the Erie Canal Harbor Development Corporation that's now in control of the Outer Harbor, as they, their vision for it and what they're doing is landscaping it you know they're taking out all the regenerative growth that there is there and a lot of the dredge spoils uh, that they put in the outer harbor had seeds from the buffalo river that germinated and we have plants out there that haven't been seen in this area for 50 or 100 years but they're there and 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 wow you know there's um there's some amazing things there but the the powers that be are sort of dedicated to arranging the landscape even though they're saying they're restoring, they're restoring the aesthetics and the recreational use, a very superficial layer of what was and what is there. You don't see it. They've cut down all the trees to make lawn, for example, you know, in one area that, you know, this really, you know, kind of amazing cottonwood forest that had grown up and some pretty majestic trees, lots of them. We went out and inventoried them and, you know, there were over a hundred big trees and they cut them all down to make a lawn for people to sit on for this me these mega concert series that's gonna start next year. So, you know, they're removing the traces and that is scary to me because how will people ever find their way back to understanding what this was or could be? For the next chapter in Margaret's story, we'll move to another landscape, the quarry. I grew up just um, one street away from a huge uh, limestone quarry. And you know, it was what an anomaly it was in the city of Buffalo, the middle of a residential neighborhood in the city of Buffalo, there was this enormous limestone quarry that was no longer, it had been, you know, closed decades ago. So it was all overgrown and it was renaturalizing in its, its own way. That was a lesson in regeneration because in my on my watch, that was um, an amazing place, better than the Outer Harbor, because we could run around out there and we did. We found stuff. Um, we found snakes. We collected fossils. Uh, we it looked like the Wild West. You know, there was buttes and mesas. You know, it was it was a very interesting landscape. And, um, and we spent a lot of time there. And now, you know, they, um, again, you know, development company bought all that land and paved it over, paved it over, you know, all, and, and, and put in a housing development, but just along one edge. I'm not quite sure what the reasoning was, but so now there's just this huge, empty, paved parking lot where the quarry was. And, um, and it's such a loss to the community, you know, kids can't go there. It's part of the Onondaga Escarpment. It's a defining feature in our city and um, and in our region. It really runs from Syracuse all the way across the north shore of Lake Erie and runs smack through uh, Buffalo. Our main street follows it and stuff. And that quarry was dug into that escarpment. And it's 
I don't know. I think it's very much key to the life here. Sadly for this generation coming up, the quarry is no longer a place that can provide that space and connection. Yeah, I taught um, uh, environmental planning at UB uh, in the architect and planning school uh, for a few years. And so that whole area that I grew up in is, is now on the east side of Buffalo. It's, you know, Buffalo it has a terribly strong racial divide. So that's sort of the black side of the line. And many of my students were black students from the east side. And they were like sort of horrified that we ran around there as kids, uh, you know, unsupervised because of the dangers. You know, I mean, I think the, the experience is that now that's not possible. There are ways in which the, you know, the city has changed and the whole country really towards uh, more access to violence. So um, some of that free roaming that we did is probably not available to people. In addition to the increase in violence over the years, also present, the persistent pressure from privatization. Now, the scary thing about development generally is that access is often, you know, becomes unavailable. So it's not, not necessarily even open anymore to people to explore. And I think about this all the time because I, I still, I'm sort of famous for leading field trips all the time in the neighborhood and kids and whatever, my, my son's friends, you know, we were always going off somewhere. And some of those places now we can't go. We, we, we need to fight for accessibility, public access to, you know, unimproved, you know, regenerating, but not necessarily re-landscaped or beautified by, you know, some company. We need that. And now we'll travel to yet another landscape to continue Margaret's story, the Oxbow. It's a meander in the Buffalo River that was cut off when a channel was put in. And protecting the wetlands left behind has become a big part of Margaret's life within mission. Within that Oxbow, there's a lot of uh, really interesting plants and animals. And I've taken a lot of people there. And the Oxbow, of course, is artificial. It's not a natural... Um, meander in the creek. It was made by the Soil and Water Conservation District back in the 1950s um, to uh, supposedly slow down or stop sedimentation um, in the creek below. This project was done which cut, it was a natural meander in the, in the, um, in the creek and it was cut off, the meander was cut off um, to um, facilitate, uh, you know, less sedimentation downstream. And so the oxbow, it is, is what was, what is left of that meander. So it's really, oh, it's not an active meander in the stream. It's a cut off meander that is now a wetland, which is what happens to a lot of oxbows. You know, they get, if they get cut off, they're, they're still wet. They're still part of the stream regime, uh, but they're wetlands. And here are some sounds of the Oxbow to bring you there, courtesy of our very own Anna from an excursion she took to check it out. What they did when they channelized the creek, they dug a straight channel from, you know, so imagine, you know, this, imagine this um, stream has this big loop in it, you know, this big meander, big deep meander. And they wanted to get rid of that and make the stream straighter. 
connect, you know, this point to this point so that, you know, you didn't, it, the water didn't have to travel through this huge meander, which is what they did. But in so doing, they uh, increased the flow, the, the, the stream rate of flow, and it became a very unnaturally fast stream. Um, and so then to try and slow it down, they built five low head dams in that reach that had, was now straightened um, to slow down the water. But uh, that didn't work because I don't know, maybe they didn't know much about fluvial geomorphology, like how do streams really work and how can we design these better? So five people have died there at the last, um, at the last uh, low head dam getting caught in the undertow if you're on the dam and you jump in the water um, you can get caught in this undertow because the water is flowing so fast it drops over the dam it makes this vortex and um, people get caught in that five people have over the years and they drown to understand how rivers flow is essential and, uh, you know, and we can't just willy-nilly cut off pieces and reconnect pieces. Wondering if we could get a little bit deeper into this work that you've been doing with the community. What activities you've been leading? Okay, so with the Oxbow, um, we talked a lot with the town of West Seneca. They own, in fact, we facilitated the transfer some one person who owned so it's all residential up on the road but then it's you know from the river up to the road it's mostly floodplain so it's undeveloped you you, you know it, it really is an, a very active floodplain so um it's undeveloped and we were trying to get more protection and get the town to um own some of that land and protect it and sure enough one family did donate a central piece, like the keystone piece to the oxbow, a chunk of land that ran from the road all the way back to the creek. Um, and uh, and they donated it, um, fortunately, to the town who owns it, but hasn't done anything with it because it's landlocked. It's, you know, there's private property on either side. So there is uh, some work to be done there in terms of getting more of that land protected. But we've done a lot of work spreading the word as much as possible to the town and the local people who live there uh, to, you know, to protect it. And also meeting with the town um, conservation uh, committee um, on what's there and why is it important. So we've had surveys done of the soils, of the birds, um, of the uh, geology beneath it, of the vegetation, and um, shared all that. So um, I think there is, we made a little book called Know Your Backyard, um, so people can, you know, identify what they have, uh, which is all stuff that's at the Oxbow, but there's some, there's some pretty interesting uh, plants there, um, and, and also species. There's coyotes living there, for example, and um, getting grants for people to get to work out there, and then working out there myself, uh, planting native trees. Um, and replanting the tr the stuff that we knew was there, had been there, and also trying to combat invasive species, which is like on everybody's plate. So a lot of people, we still are attached to the Oxbow. We, we will probably, I mean, I think we even made a little, you know, sort of like hand sign, like, you know, we're, we're Oxbow people. 
we're so used to this reductionist, this engineering kind of thought process of let's just straighten this river without necessarily thinking about the entire system and how that impacts things yeah. um, that aren't right there in front of you. Yeah. yeah. Any way that you've gotten people to kind of start thinking that way, to start thinking about the whole system rather than just, let's just change this little thing and it'll be better, but not taking into account the whole. Yeah, no, it's hard. Our, 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 we are not set up. Uh, our economy, our institutions are not set up to think that way. They're set up to think about, you know, how can we rearrange this to make it more productive, to make it more, you know, economically efficient or, or whatever. And um, so it's it's hard. And, um, you know, one of the ongoing fights I think I've had is with the Army Corps of Engineers because they're, you know, that's what they do. Uh, they mess with, they manipulate rivers um, and uh, they straighten them, they dredge them deeper, you know, the Buffalo River is dredged to like 25 feet. It's a river that's whose natural depth is like six feet, you know, um, and so uh, no wonder there were no fish in the Buffalo River between like uh, I don't know, like 1890 and, and 1950 or something. There are no fish, no fish at all because there's no oxygen in the water because it was so deep. Um, and so, you know, yeah, it's very um, hard to uh, get, get ourselves out of the habit of rearranging the land and water to our liking rather than working with it and moving out of its way. And not far from Buffalo, there's a development project called STAMP. Which is a science, technology, and manufacturing park. And STAMP offers an example of how more ecological and holistic ways of caring for land are just too often at odds with the way we currently do development. I live in Buffalo. Uh, 30 miles east of here is a place we call Alabama Swamp. It's the biggest wetland in New York State. It includes the Iroquois National Wildlife Refuge, which is a 10,000 acre. It's the biggest wildlife, this is federal wildlife refuge in New York State. Um, and there's another 10,000 acres of uh, smaller wildlife areas. And um, this is this is an area, like I say, we call Alabama Swamp, and it's famous as a flyway and as a bird watching place. Um, and also living there is this Tonawanda Seneca Nation on about 7,500 acres of land, just one mile south of the of the wildlife refuge, and in the middle of, you know, all this other um, habitat basically that's been protected in some ways as such. And the county, the Economic Development Agency there, uh, decided that that's where they wanted to put an industrial park. We don't really even have a client, and they put this, they, they want to put this thing right on the edge of, of that land where people really have a, lived in this particular traditional community, um, you know, and they've got their big woods, which is, I've never been to, but I've heard it's phenomenal. It's, you know, something that they have managed for centuries, um, an old growth forest, really, with a great diversity of plants and animals, medicine plants and uh, animals that they hunt, but it regenerates continually. And they're putting this industrial campus next to it, um, 1,200 acre. We're tearing up all this wetland 
um, and all the, 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 these forests and grasslands, endangered species habitat, known habitat uh, for uh, some uh, one endangered and a threatened species of bird. And um, and for what, you know, uh, to make shovel ready sites, it's total, it's, we, we, we're, we're going to develop on the basis of total speculation, somebody's going to come and make, you know, help us make a lot of money here. And so, uh, it, and not only, you know, is it um, totally speculative, uh, but it also um, erases that possibility of connection to Mother Earth and to what's here for future generations. I think that you are illustrating an interesting point here that we can see physically manifested, and that is the difference between like the myths, the stories that we live by. You've got this this old growth patch. How was that even possible? And so I, I don't know if there's, is there anything that you can share with us? Because I know you have some some close relationships with people in, in the Seneca Nation. What is it about them from your understanding and from your experience that allows for that old growth forest? And, and how could we adopt that into, into our culture? How could we begin telling those stories? Hmm. Well, you know, um, necessity is the mother of invention. I mean, you know, they're the last on the food chain to get serviced by any kind of public services. And so they're pretty self-reliant, you know, so they make their own medicines and they hunt their own meat. And they do all of this, you know, in part anyway, at the big woods on their land. So it's partly necessity. But the other part of it is what we were talking about in the beginning, which is gratitude. You know, there is uh, a great, there's gratitude for uh, among the Tanawanda Seneca and all the uh, Haudenosaunee people that I know. There's always begins and ends with that gratitude for what's there and respect for the life that's there. And Margaret didn't stop with sharing the story of what's happening with the Big Woods and with Stamp. She also provided us with a link that can be found in the show notes to the Tonawanda Seneca Nation's Facebook page or to join their mailing list to follow the story. We are trying to um, fight, but it's, um, it, it is a very stacked deck that we're fighting. Who knew how stacked? The most stacked deck I've ever come across so far. So um, it's hard. It's, it's a hard fight, but um, we have to do something. The Tonawana Seneca have come out unanimous to the hearings. You know, man, woman, and child, little kids, really old men, you know, um, and everybody in between all showing up at these hearings, uh, testifying, unanimous testi testimony against this thing. And after the story of the Big Woods and a sense of the challenge we all face in learning to heal whole landscapes, she made sure to add a dose of hope for what could be. I wouldn't be involved in all this without some sort of hope that we can do things better. And I have seen, you know, where natural regeneration has been allowed to occur, I've seen transformation. I've seen regeneration. Um, it often is not allowed to occur. I mean, but where it, where it occurs, um, it doesn't take long for things to sort of gel in some sort of original configuration that is, you know, the history of this place. And um, it's kind of magical in a way, really, the strength of a place to re regenerate if you leave it alone, help it along a little bit, you know, um, 
because it's all out of balance. There's tons of deer everywhere at the Oxbow chewing down the trees, all part of the uh, learning how to, um, you know, how to support life coming back there. But um, we do have, oh, here comes a baby. Um, we do we do have this new organization starting called Great Lakes Eco Region Network, and it's uh, starting with a lot of the same people, including me, who were worked with the original group by national group called Great Lakes United, and um, they started back in the late 1980s uh, in response to the Great Lakes Water Quality Agreement and its goal of restore and maintain the chemical, physical, and biological integrity of the waters of the Great Lakes. That was a flag we could all fly. And um, it's been picked apart since, but it always comes back pretty much to that. Um, and so, um, yeah, Great Lakes United was, was uh, a coalition of groups from across the Great Lakes, from Duluth, Minnesota, to uh, Montreal, Quebec, we always included the St. Lawrence River when we talked about the Great Lakes Basin because it's the connection to the ocean, it's the drainage, and a lot of stuff ends up in the St. Lawrence River that was, you know, chemically built in Niagara Falls, let's say. A lot of the work that I've done and other people have done came out of that Great Lakes Water Quality Agreement attention to these areas of concern. And what we are trying to do now when we form Great Lakes Ecoregion Network, which is coming along, um, is to sort of restate the goals a little bit more clearly, including what it means to restore and maintain. Because a lot of these areas of concern that are getting restored are again then going back on the market. You know, they're, they're th restoration, you know, it's hard for capitalism to keep out of anything that promises, uh, you know, um, money. You know, restoration has come to mean redevelopment. So a lot of people who've worked on areas of concern and, you know, like we are, uh, you know, are horrified to see that, you know, now that all this money and time has been spent to help renaturalize and remove the contaminants and clear up the brownfields, that is going to be paved over and developed into high-rise housing. This is, so Great Lakes United, um, you know, gave the uh, idea, uh, and we have with the Outer Harbor, that these areas of concern should be become areas of protection. That all 42 of these, you know, um, compromised areas around the Great Lakes that people have worked on so hard and done so many good things, um, they should not be put back on the market. They should become areas of protection. So I don't know. It's like when I was when I was you know a teenager, it was like make love not war. Okay, that was our slogan. I don't, I need a slogan like that, a four-word slogan for what we want now. It definitely has to do with maintaining the restoration work that you've done and the, and the, and the restoration work that the land has done, the, you know, the regeneration that's actually happened. Margaret later sent us a slogan to represent this idea. Protect first, restore second. You're mentioning about Great Lakes United, uh, which has um, unfortunately was not able to continue to do about, what, eight years ago? Um, and, yeah, I don't yeah. know when it, I think uh, it was probably around uh, 2015 or something when it went down. Money was the, you know, nobody wanted to write grants anymore, It's which is, I understand. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I think that um, 
having this kind of overarching view is really helping everybody think in whole systems because we have to collaborate in order to really make big change. And mm. so you were the executive director of Great Lakes United, mm -hmm. which is spanned two countries, what, five states, multiple eight states, states, eight, eight states. states, two provinces and multiple. I don't know how many First Nation lands a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I'm wondering if you could just tell us some like lessons learned from the time that you were leading this really dynamic organization. Um, when I came on as executive director, it was all pretty well formed. First thing that I learned and loved about Great Lakes United was the inclusion of all these people from around the lakes who were having the exact same issues that we had here. The first time I met Great Lakes United, the even, reason I got involved is they were doing hearings around the Great Lakes on the Great Lakes Water Quality Agreement and the areas of concern. They went to all the areas of concern, maybe not all, but most of them, and, um, and people came to learn you know, what they were doing and, and what they might do, uh, how they could work together. All of those meetings were, they were regenerative in themselves. You know, hearing other communities dealing with the stuff that you're dealing with, but they've made a breakthrough here or something, good idea there. There was, that was a very, very powerful thing that Great Lakes United did. Um, just connected us all. Um, the one story that I remember the most, um, it will never leave me, was when we did our, uh, we did uh, a whole series of hearings. When I was uh, executive director, we, we did uh, 10 across that span from Duluth. We had one in Duluth, we had one in Montreal, and we, um, and we had one um, in Detroit, and we had one in Buffalo. Um, the one in Detroit was uh, attended by the Walpole Island Indigenous Nation, which includes Potawatomi and um, Chippewa or Anishinaabe and um, I think a third nation too. There's a lake in the middle of the Detroit River before it gets into Detroit. In this lake, there's an island called Walpole Island and it is totally an indigenous island occupied by these people. And they were at this hearing um, that I was at in Detroit. And, and um, one of the speakers, he said, you know, we are downstream from Chemical Valley. Chemical Valley is uh, Sar Sar Sarnia um, and another city, you know, at the, at the top of the, it's the headwaters of the Detroit River. And then the Detroit River flows down. Well, you know, it's also called Cancer Alley because such industrialization at the north end of the Detroit River in Sarnia that the water was undrinkable. So all of the people living along the Detroit River, the smaller communities were getting, you know, big money to, um, you know, have water, either have their water piped from somewhere else, sometimes very far away. And the um, the guy from Walpole Island at the hearing said, um, we won't do that. We were offered to do that and we won't do it. We're not going to tie into the, this water main that's coming from wherever, you know, some um, somebody's water treatment plant because are the birds getting this water? Are the animals getting this water? You know, are are we the only ones that are going to be getting this water? 
we would not do that to our relations. We can't have that. So they they didn't. They don't. I still can't believe it. I was I was so impressed with that thinking. I I I think it's very impressive. One of the things that we've been noticing is that along with land connection, there's this sense of spirituality within a lot of the people that we've been interviewing, a lot of these regenerative leaders and believers. And I think that it goes kind of hand in hand with this culture of gratitude, um, this culture of openness, this culture of considering other non-humans to be just as valuable as humans. I was wondering if you could share a little bit about your spirituality, uh, because you have kind of an interesting background in that and how that might be tied into how you dedicate yourself to things that are bigger than yourself. Okay, with me it's a little complicated, but I grew up as a Baha'i. My parents were Baha'is. I'm the last of five children, so all my older brothers and sisters were Baha'is. We we grew up as Baha'is. Baha'is don't have, it's, you know, it's a new religion from like 1850 or so uh, with our own prophet and um, it believes that uh, there have been nine major world revealed religions and, uh, you know, Baha'i faith being the ninth. And, um, but it has its own tenets and, um, and the oneness of my, mankind is probably the first one, the oneness of mankind, that we're all alike. Um, and so that right there, it's inclusive. You know, the inclusiveness of it is very evident when you go to Baha'i meetings. There are people from, you know, of every skin tone and from all over the world. Um, there is, I think, a, a great deal of attraction for people to to that, to, to being in those kind of communities. And um, so uh, the inclusiveness is there, and I love that about them. And I remember my parents, you know, so like they don't have a clergy, they don't have churches, they meet in people's homes, and different Baha'is host them uh, regularly, and my parents did. So that way we were all involved too. We, you know, we, they were in our home, so we attended too. I like that. Um, and I like the fact that it was people of all color, you know, so, you know, in a racially segregated city like we have our home was not and so it it was always um i was always honored by that and and um proud of it really but the inclusiveness did not extend to animals (laughs) did not Mm -hmm. extend to the environment per se but now my brother is still a practicing baha'i and his family oh my goodness they are totally and um, and I, they are the greatest, gentlest, kindest, giving people you'd ever meet. Um, but they don't share my environmental ethic very much. I mean, I, I think they would, you know, but it's not a primary concern, really. It's just that, you know, it, apart from very flowery language about the birds and the bees in prayer, um, it doesn't seem to care too much about the local uh, value and beauty of a place or a river. And, um, you know, and maybe that's just not developed into the language yet. So I think Baha'i can also evolve to include that. Mm-hmm. As long as God is off earth, you know, somewhere, as long as you when you pray and you pray to God, God, as long as God remains someone, you know, somewhere else, 
not on this earth. That's a problem. You know, mm-hmm. that is a problem. I cannot pray to that God. Um, I can pray to something like Gaia, to the spirit of the earth. Um, or I have all kinds of different ways of putting it. But uh, I hope I don't get struck by lightning for saying all this. But, you know, I'm just saying. <laughs> I think that that's a great way to put it, that God has to really be present in everything in order for us to really yeah. truly be. Yeah, life itself. Life itself, you know, gratitude for life itself. And life itself is, I mean, this little person walking around, not walking, but being carried around in my house right now is a miracle to me. I can't hardly believe it. We didn't think we were going to have any more grandchildren. And here he is. (laughs) Hey, enjoy your family time. Thank you. Thank you. I will. And that little baby. (laughs) That little baby. (laughs) Okay, thanks, guys. Bye, Margaret. Bye. I'm going to hit Thanks for listening. If you're feeling a jolt of inspiration, if you'd like to support Anna and me in our ongoing efforts to tell these stories, you can donate to us on our Patreon at Awakening Lands. Links for all this can be found in the show notes. Thanks, and please tell your landscape we said hello.